welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Punching tokens, unwrapping cards, and getting pesky minis off the sprue without breaking them? All fine ways to level up. Welcome to episode 117 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. This is just Patrick, and I mean just Patrick. And and as always, I'm thrilled to be part of your day. In this episode, we've got some excellent recent adventures, an 8-bit breakdown of Dune Uprising, and we're also going to do a little bit of solo land. So interesting episode today. It's going to be me flying solo. King's a little bit under the weather, so we'll get him back next week. And geez, you know what? As I'm recording tomorrow night, we're doing our best of 2023 episode. So behind the scenes, there's just been, oh my goodness, so much work going on. So we recorded this episode like a week ago from the time I'm recording it now. And there was just all kinds of audio issues. So we started again this morning and King was sick. So you know what? I was like, you know what? Take a break, Scott. I'm just going to fly it solo. Not all alone though. I'm going to have a visit from the hungry gamer, Will Brown, as well as our very own explorer, Josh going to be a little bit different trying to banter just on my own, so hopefully I can keep you entertained throughout the day. First and foremost, congrats to the winner of Nut Hunt. We had a giveaway in our guild, Guild 3722. If you're not in there, join. That's where we're going to do all of our contests, as many of you know. So we had the, uh, we did our best of season three games, the top 10, our favorite games. And we asked you, what are your three favorites from everything that we did? And all you had to do, go to the forum and click a reply and say, here's my three favorites. And voila, you're in. So of the people that entered, the winner is Toxic Texan. Very cool. Very happy to be able to provide a game to a listener. Congrats to Toxic Texan. Let's talk some of the new stuff coming out. First and foremost, man, there are a ton of people going bonkers for this worm span. Stonemeyer Games announces worm span. Now, from the BGG page, you're an amateur dracologist in the world of Wormspan, a place where dragons of all shapes, sizes, and colors roam the skies. Excavate a hidden labyrinth you recently unearthed on your land and entice these beautiful creatures to roost in the sanctuary of your caves. During a game of Wormspan, you'll build a sanctuary for dragons of all shapes and sizes. Your sanctuary begins with three excavated spaces. The leftmost space in your Crimson Cavern, your Golden Grotto, and your Amethyst Abyss. Over the course of the game, you'll excavate additional spaces in your sanctuary and entice dragons to live there, chaining together powerful abilities and earning the favor of the Dragon Guild. Wormspan is inspired by the mechanisms of Wingspan, though its unique elements make it a standalone game, not compatible with Wingspan. So this sounds cool. This is a basically it's using the Wingspan system, that whole three rows, play a card, chain the actions together. Now, I understand it's going to be different enough that a collection might warrant having both in it. I'm excited about the theme change. You know, one of the things that people gripe on with Wingspan is uh, the, the bird watching. It's just not like, I personally, I like it. I think it's kind of nice to do something a little bit different in my game, but there's a lot of folks that rate it really low and say, oh, it's, it's bird watching. It's boring. And that's fair. But maybe dragons will be a little bit more appealing. I don't know. We'll see. I'm a big fan of Wingspan. Played a good bit on BGA. Oh my goodness, have that app. There's a fantastic app for Wingspan. And my brothers and I will play that one. It used to be like every week. And now it's turning... Well, we haven't played it for a long time anyhow. But uh, a big fan of Wingspan. Very curious to see more of Wormspan. But, but you know what? I was thinking about it. I signed up for their reviewer list. Maybe we should reach out to Jamie and see if we can get a copy of Wormspan. Uh, interesting, interesting stuff coming from Stonemeyer Games. 
All right, next up, Humble Bundle has their Play Pink Game Bundle. Smash hit digital board game. So this is if you play like via the Epic Store or Steam. And it's one of those pay what you want and you can pick between like five and 25 bucks. But check this out. Pay at least 20 bucks for these 35 items. Games that you can play online. Let's start right here. Gloomhaven. That alone, I got that in the last Humble Bundle promo. And I'm telling you what, it was 50 hours of gameplay sitting on the computer with this thing. Gloomhaven and you get the solo scenarios you can't beat that right there worth the price enchanted like i and enchanted terraforming mars comes in this with prelude with hellas and elysium game of thrones with the dance with dragons and the feast for crows expansion how about this you get blood rage with gods of asgard mythical monsters and a whole bunch of other stuff carcassonne with like eight expansions same thing with splendor just about everything they put out there for small world arkham horror dude Lord of the Rings, the, the definitive edition. You get the adventure card game. Lord of the Rings adventure card game on digital format. There's so many board games here you get to play. And it's 25 bucks. Adventures, just Google. Humble Bundle. It's the Play Pink Game Bundle. You can't beat it. The amount of games you get for the price, mm, don't miss out. Next on the list, an expansion for Heat Pedal to the Metal. Heat Heavy Rain is set to come out in 2024. Wet conditions, a variant cooldown, and maps for Japan and Mexico. How about that? This expansion introduces a new driver with all the essential player-specific components in orange. So now you can have a seven-player race. Two new maps, as mentioned, Japan and Mexico. New upgrade cards, introducing the Purple Drop, a different cooldown that allows the player to take a Heat card from their discard pile and put it back into their engine. Submerged track sections, think like water on the road. You got to spend extra heat for downshifting gears when you're in these sections. More heat, stress, championship sponsor, and event cards. To me, that last bullet point, that's the biggie. It sounds like this expansion is going to give us a couple of boards that have some, some variations to them. A little like, we'll say a wrinkle in your basic heat gameplay, but you throw in the more cards, uh, the more sponsors, etc. I like when an expansion does more of a good thing. I haven't played that much heat. You know, I, I got to say, for all the games last year a lot of folks put heat as their game of the year and maybe rightfully so i mean this thing was hard to find for a long time like the hottest thing since arc nova when it came out might still be there it's, it's still in the hotness regularly on bgg uh, i like it i like it plenty i don't think it's the greatest things since sliced bread but i enjoy it plenty uh nevertheless if you're a big fan of heat heat heavy rain slated to be released soon from days of wonder now, I think it was over summer we talked about Rauha, R-A-U-H-A. This is a, a neat little game where you're like bringing life back to this planet of Rauha. It, it goes in cycles, like it flourishes and the floor of the fun are there and then it all dies off and then it comes back. And as you play the game, you are like, okay, you need to entice the floor of the fun and rebuild this, this land, so to speak. So you've got this grid of tiles, nine tiles, three by three, and a little piece is going to go around the outside of the board. And as it does, it triggers the first column, the second, the third, hits the corner for a little break, little caveat. And then it goes off to the side, off to the right side of that grid, and it's going to trigger the first row and then the second row, etc. It's a neat little engine building game. This one we reviewed over summer, reviewed it favorably. They've got an expansion for it as well called Sintima or Sintima, S-Y-N-T-Y-M-A. So you're going to call your game Rauha, and then you're going to call the expansion something that I can't pronounce. Nevertheless, uh, for those that picked up Rauha after listening, the expansion is coming out soon. Tapestry, back to Stonemire. Tapestry has a revised, rebalanced civilization pack. Uh, this one's actually out already, released on January 3rd. So 
tapestry comes out and with all those civilizations, inevitably, no amount of attempting to balance things is going to be perfect. There's too many variables in that game. So after a little while, people start saying the futurists are a little too powerful. This faction is a little too powerful. So they made a Narada pack. And then they put it out on Board Game Arena. And holy cow, you want to put a game through the ringer. Put it on BGA. There's going to be a thousand games going at any given time. And Stonemaier's smart. They're collecting those stats. They're looking at what's winning, who's winning. In fact, even before it was on BGA, they were asking people to report, what are you winning with? What's losing? What are your final scores? How many people are you playing with? So that they could tinker and modify it a little bit. And now it sounds like we've got this revised, rebalanced Civ pack that's out there. So if you play enough that you're starting to find, well, this faction wins a little too much or a little OP, well, this might be the thing that nerfs them a little bit. Me, personally, I don't play a game enough to ever feel like I get to that. Well, that's not entirely true. There are some games that I've played enough that I can identify what's a little too strong or what's not quite as strong as the other things. Tapestry, it comes back every couple of months for me. So I feel like, let's let's take the Futurist, for example. If they're broken, I don't really know because I'll play a four-player game and if somebody has them and they win, it's like, oh, pat on the back, day one, they did a great job. And then we pack it away. And then three months later, the Futurist might not even be in that game. And I don't even remember that, oh, the Futurist did some really broken things. Now, if you play weekly, this is the kind of thing that you're going to be looking for. Revised, rebalanced Civ pack. It's already out there. Get it. A couple more things before we get on to the recent plays. First, I want to remind you, we are starving for iTunes reviews. And it's funny because I, I don't know why we are. I'm not certain what it does. I, I've scoured the internet. I have no idea what iTunes reviews do for your visibility, but everything I understand, anytime you listen to any podcast, it really gets us out there. I'm under the impression that the more ratings you have, good, bad, or otherwise, it's going to make your show like one, like if somebody just goes on and they type in board game podcast, the first things that come up are the things that have the most reviews. So our goal is try and get a little bit higher up on that list. So please, if you have the time today, take a moment, whatever platform you're listening on, give us that that five star, that 10 star, you know, the full review. It really means a lot to us. Lastly, just got to say, I had Josh carrying two copies of Battle Masters through Philadelphia, as you'll recall from the, the PAX 2023 recap episode. So I get them back and I'm inventorying them. And thankfully, there's literally everything available to make one copy and a whole bunch of extra pieces from the second copy. Everything available except for six dice, which I was able to get on eBay. But I'm I'm tinkering with this. I'm like, you know, I want to make this thing deluxe. I might paint it. I don't know. I swore off painting there for a minute after doing Wolfenstein because it takes so long. And there's so many miniatures in Battlemasters. It's absurd. That said... I'm looking through all the figures and I'm putting them on the bases. And some of them, like those of you that have played Battle Masters, this game is Milton Bradley 1992. So we're talking an old you know, a relic and quite frankly, not the greatest game out there either. But I like it. It gives me that nostalgic childhood feeling. A lot of these characters have shields and they'll have a sticker on the shield or they have flagpoles. Every one of the bases, picture like a little, uh, like a rectangle and there's five figures on it. You just slot them down into it and that's your, that's your unit of, we'll say, orcs. They have a little flagpole in the front, and then they have a banner that shows like their orc flag symbol. So whenever you're moving those orcs, or whenever you draw that card, oh, I'm going to move these guys, and you know the flag goes across this giant play, man. It's really cool. It's, it's, it's neat. Well, they all have little flags on them, and those are just stickers folded, folded in half, wrapped around the flagpole. And some of my stickers are missing. So I got to thinking. I told my wife, who was watching me in amazement that I was spending all this time doing this, I told my wife, I bet you somebody has these up on Board Game Geek. 
And sure enough, they do. So it was off to the geek and somebody's got the sticker file where you can go there and use sticker paper in your printer. You can print them all out. So I'm telling you what, I can't wait to spend a little bit of time deluxifying this. I think I'm going to make like a wooden box that's tall enough that you can put all the pieces in with the flagpole still on. Then maybe a drawer underneath for the mat and a second drawer underneath for the extra. Oh my goodness. I don't think I have that kind of woodworking skill, but I'm excited to try. So if you are looking for a piece to a game that you're missing or a card, especially for like an old game that you can't just email the publisher, check BGG, check the files pages. You might be able to find things like stickers, printable cards, uh, printable uh, player mats, things of that nature. It was kind of cool. I was happy to see that. Let me take a break, get a little coffee, and then we'll come back and I want to talk about Project EOS Rise. What's the best part about playing a board game? The camaraderie with friends? The immersion into the game's themes? The strategic thinking it takes to win? At Level Up, we believe the best part of the board game is the sweet sound of putting the lid back on the box. That's right, the sensational vibrant frequency caused by four walls of glossy, airtight cardboard being rubbed against another four. This episode's feature, Through the Ages from CGE, a game about building a civilization, highly regarded amongst Eurogamers and among the highest ranking games on BoardGameGeek. The reason? It's so obvious. Give this a listen. What a statement, a game that gives so many decisions throughout a lengthy playtime, through the ages knows how to properly put an exclamation point at the end of the sentence that is gameplay. I mean, come on. This is magic. (laughs) That's a game's proper way of saying farewell until it gets back on the table. Let's hear that again. Oh god. Remember. If your game doesn't serenade you when you complete it, you didn't really even play. Thank you so much for your time today. I hope this experience provides enrichment for your future gaming experiences. All right, Adventures, recent play time. And again, with just me, I had to do something to make it captivating. So I picked a couple really good ones today. So listen in. There you go. Spoiler right off the bat. These are these are some really cool ones. Let's start with 2021 release from Random World Games. This is designed by James Baker. It's called Project EOS Rise. Now, this was a Kickstarter project that had like just under 400 backers. So it's indie, baby, right? Not a lot of people have this. Not a lot of people know about it. It's not, to, it's not you know, taking over the BGG hotness. But let me tell you what, it's better than a lot of stuff on there. I'm scrolling down the book of face and I see this picture of this sweet spaceship, which, I mean, if you know me, you know I get a little aroused at the thought of intergalactic travel. Turns out the picture was the box cover for Project EOS Rise. And the person who posted it was James, the designer, looking for reviewers. So this was generously provided by James himself in exchange for a glowing review, regardless of how I actually felt about the game. Seriously, think sandbox cooperative space opera. And I'm going to try and paint a picture here. Uh, Let's start with this. You get to play as the four heroes that are going to save humanity. So there's these signals, like radio signals that we're gathering that basically state that the Earth is dying. you got to get out of there. You've got seven years to find this paradise planet. We're all going to die. So you're the four characters that are tasked with finding the paradise planet. Worker placement is going to be the primary mechanism through which you're going to carry out all the actions in this game. Anything you need to do, you place a worker for it. Combine that with a pandemic-style co-op. All right, that's pretty cool. I'm listening, right? But how about this? You have upgradable, customizable characters 
with their own missions, as well as these thematic events that occur. You have some reason to pick up and deliver, visit various destination. It's like Pandemic meets Zaya, Legends of Adris system. And that is a winning combination to me. So let's get a tab more in depth. The board, it's got these galaxies all over it. Realistically, it's a hex board on one half, and each intersection of each hex represents a galaxy, like where the hexes meet, all the intersections. This is where you can move to, where you can fly the spaceship EOS. It's where the baddies are going to move to. It's where various things might get seated on the board, extra credits, destination marks, that sort of thing. The other side of the board has this nice, robust art of the spaceship. Plus, it houses the primary work placement spots of the game, represented by rooms of the ship your command room, your shield, your engine room, as well as five more that you can unlock throughout play, though not necessarily. You're not always going to get all five of them every game. The baddies are red spaceships, and these are like laser-cut wooden maples that come in three different ship classes, which are going to determine how strong they are. Four of them sit in a redeploy area. Think like on deck in baseball, you know who's coming up next. Four of them sit down there. They're basically showing that they're coming to the board soon. And when you add them to the board, Check this out. They use the destination system or destiny system. It's roll a d20. That shows you what hex you're going to. And then roll a d6. That shows you what intersection on the border of that hex you're going to. Right? That's how they're going to put a lot of things on the board in this game. Now, what ships are going to come out next round? After those ones on deck, get onto the board. It's random. You pull them from a bag. This opaque red cloth bag is actually really nice. And even how they behave each round is going to be random. It's based on a deck of cards according to their ship class. Three different types of ships. They all have a slightly different cut. And they each have their own deck. So when it's time to move the little ships, you flip the top card. It says, oh, okay, they move three. They attack one. Whatever. The thing is you can't predict how the enemies are going to act, how they're going to behave. Things are not deterministic in this one. All right, let's talk about the player characters. Four of them. Uh, you can play with uh, one to four people. You got the commander. They help keep stress level down, which can keep actions manageable without having excess damage done to the ship, that sort of thing. But maybe more importantly, the commander has a means of acquiring extra workers for the players, which is extraordinarily important because to start the game, each player has just one worker, thus just one action per round. The engineer... They're going to be like the machine for building rooms and repairing. Combat specialists, just like it sounds, don't need to dive deep into it. And the pilot, who's got the means of increasing the speed of the EOS. Typically when you move, you move along the border of one hex. But as the pilot upgrades and gets more powerful, you might be able to move two or even three or more. Now, I love that each player, they're going to get their own dual-layered player board. It tracks their levels, their upgrades and whatnot. And they've even each got like a little area of action cubes that they can spend to do something unique to their character. So you actually have like an allotment of actions specific to you. Like the pilot, for example, has got the ability to spend some of their four cubes for afterburners, which let the, lets the ship move a little bit further. On top of that, as you upgrade your characters, you move a little piece along the track of your player board. That's going to unlock extra abilities, extra dice along the way. Yes, a lot of things in this game are resolved using dice, yet another throwback to Zaya. Anyway, once you hit the fourth spot on your upgrade track for your character, it branches into three paths, and you pick one, and you're on that path. That's that's how you're playing your character for this game. So each character has three different branching routes that they can take. The asymmetry is even there with your own character. 
also, on top of the actions that you have every game as printed on the main board of the ship, you have access to four different space stations, which are randomly placed in each of the four quadrants of the board. So there's tons of variability. I, I think hopefully that paints a little bit of the picture. What What's the goal of the game here? What are we trying to do in Project Eos Rise? Something about finding a new Earth-like planet. Yes, that's the goal. You've got seven years to do it, or game rounds, basically. Now to do this, you've got to move up a progress track to the seventh spot. And this is most directly done by collecting these signal tokens that were seated on the board at the start of the play. But it can also be done by completing missions or contracts or wiping out enough alien ships. Basically, you're trying to gather intel and info to find out where's this planet. We're running out of time. We're going to find it. Once you reach the last spot on that progress track, it triggers what they call the last dash. This is the, uh, okay, Earth's going to go. We need to get to this planet now. First, you roll the D20 and the D6 to determine the location of that planet, much like everything else. Then the game continues as before. And the only difference is you don't have to track rounds. You're not going to lose the end of seven now. You just keep going till you either win or lose. The alien ships move before you. And they always go right for that planet, so it makes the positioning a lot more dangerous. you got to, like, weave your way through them or fight through them to get to that planet. And basically, you're going to win the game. If you get to the planet, you're going to lose if you don't. That That's it. So a few things to clarify. How complex is this? You know, that's that's the first first impression that I, that I want to give because it sounds like there's a lot going on here. And there is... But I think it's complexity at first shake. There's a lot of upfront information, and I'll call back to Zaya again because it's one that I think a lot of us have played. Maybe that'll that'll make it uh, easier to comprehend. Zaya is not a difficult game. You take three actions in a turn, and then you just pass. It's simple. You read some cards here and there. You roll some dice. Nothing to it. But there are a lot of different actions to consider, and you kind of have to know what every symbol is. Oh, what happens when I go in a nebula? Oh, what happens whenever I go into that portal? There's a lot of things that you need to know ahead of time in order to play the game. And that's what happens with Project EOS Rise. It's not a problem per se. It's just that it's going to be a lengthy teach for your first go. And then after that, it's like, oh, okay, I take an action or two per round. Oh, I know what I'm doing here. It's actually really easy once you get going. Now, we don't want our co-op games to be too easy. This is a common complaint. I'm not going to play a game if I know going in it's over 50-50 that I'm probably going to win this. You know what happens? It gets boring. Okay, I I did that. I solved that. I'm done with it. There's nothing new to discover, nothing new to try. Co-op's got to be hard. Think like 25-30% win ratio, and this does that. Holy smokes, let's do it. Okay, it would be hard if everything was predictable. If you knew how things are going to act, much like in uh, in Pandemic, how you do that reshuffle and you kind of know what cities are on the top. Or in Spirit Island, you flip the top card and it says mountain. So you know that next turn, these, these invaders, they're going to be spawning in the mountain regions. Then after that, building in the mountain regions. So you know what you're up against. You know what you have to fight. And the variation comes in how you up to do it. In this game... It reminds me a little bit of, we did a review a couple years ago of a game called The Spill. And The Spill was a co-op game whereby you're trying to get all this oil out of the ocean. And the oil, every turn, is going to be leaking from this big oil derrick. And the way that they do it is this dice tower that distributes them. The bottom of the tower is just like like a dome. So as the dice fall through and they hit that dome, they might go into any one of four different quadrants of the board. What makes that game a challenge sometimes is that sometimes you put six dice in and four of them come out in one quadrant. And then the next turn you put six dice in again and four of them come out in that quadrant again. It's like, oh my goodness, we're getting overloaded over here. This has the destiny system to determine where things are seated. So sometimes I'll draw a mission and it's going to say that I need to deliver something to 
another location. Where Okay, so Zaya throwback. I got to get it to Kreller. I start looking on the board and, okay, where's planet Kreller? Okay, I see it over there. I know what to do. In this, you roll the d20 and the d6, so your cargo might need to be delivered right next to you. It might need to be delivered far away. So when coming into the game, you don't know. Sometimes the game throws you a bone here and there like, hey, look, this is this is going to be easy to grab. Go do it. Sometimes you just roll and you're like, oh, man, it's not going to work out because it's on the other side. There's three ships in. We're just going to abandon that mission. Want to briefly mention the components because we got laser cut meeples, dual layered player boards. This thing for for a game that had a production of seemingly under a thousand copies because they had what like 400 backers, the production is unreal. You get these nice linen finished cards, all these laser cut meeples. There are so many wooden pieces in this box that you need. It's fantastic. The the bag again, the board's got beautiful artwork to it. Not a whole lot of art once you're in the game. Uh, part of me kind of wishes that the uh, that the cards had some art on them, but you know what? They make up for it with story, which adds theme and flavor. Check this out. So I'm playing the other day. Two different cards I just wanted to pull out. One that's serious and one that's like, oh, that can happen. So an example of one of the missions that you might pull. Ancient Station Logs this is one of the event cards. Something mysteriously pulled us out of light speed today. After a full systems check, we discovered the logs of an ancient orbital station. Perhaps they'll be of value. Now, this is a game changer event. It reads, roll for location one time, put three credits and a skill token there. Well, that's an example of where, like, if you roll and it is two spaces away from you, oh, man, game just threw you a bone. And I like the idea of, like, the theme of this card. Like, oh, we we received a little bit of info. We got some kind of some kind of radio wave and we're translating it and there's something out there. Oh, and it's right over there. I like that. It tells some story as you're going. But another one is called This Can't Be Real. This one reads, while exploring a swampy planet, we were accosted by a small frog-like creature who claimed to be able to alter the future if one of us licked it. (laughs) Could this creature hold this ability it claimed, or was it just a perverted trick? There's only one way to find out. (laughs) Now, Now, this one's optional. It says, try your luck. Each crew member, that's each player, may lick the frog. In parentheses, roll the d6. On a one or a two, you gain a skill. On a three or a four, on a five or six, etc. So good things, bad things, depending on your roll. That's the kind of thing that can happen in this. And each of these events comes from this big old deck, one for each quadrant of the board. There's probably 25, 30 cards in each of those decks. So every time you play, you're going to get a slightly different story. And even if you see repeat cards, you're going to get varying outcomes. Phenomenal job for the replayability of what's essentially a a cooperative game, a beat-the-game style of game that those tend to lack the replayability once you've beaten them. This doesn't. What I want to drive home, think cooperative space opera. Pandemic meets Zaya. Project Eos Rise is going to be totally under the radar, but I encourage all of you adventurers, check this one out. Hello adventurers and welcome to Lost Loop, the part of the show where I talk about any and all games ranked below 1,000 on Board Game Geek. Sadly, I'm probably not going to be able to make the Best Games of the Year podcast, but Patrick was able to kindly, very kindly, invite me to do a Lost Loot episode. And I've been playing a lot of games lately, so now I have the opportunity to talk about some. Now I've been traveling around, been to PAX, I'm going to Tantrum Con here soon. I'm going to be traveling around a lot this year in preparation for me launching Cake Pie Games. So I'm hoping to play a lot of interesting little games in the kitty corners of both small cons and big cons. 
But for now, what I would like to talk about is a party game that has recently come across my attention that I think deserves to be talked about because of what it encapsulates as far as games go. We are looking at a game that is ranked 13,058 on the Board Game Geek scale. So we are way down in the weeds. This game was designed by Dave Campbell and produced by Dolphin Hat Games, one of my favorite publishers. And that is Gimme That, spelled G-I-M-M-E space T-H-A-T exclamation point. Gimme That, party game released just recently in 2022, but kind of went under the radar, in my opinion, with other big releases. So in this potato-themed party game, you win by being the first player to write the number 100 while counting potatoes on the sheet in front of you. The catch, there's only one pencil for the entire group to use while tallying up their taters. The game starts with one person writing while the rest of the circle takes turns rolling the dice. Most of the options rolled cause you to give everyone else a goofy gesture, a high five or a slap, a fist bump, or mashed potatoes, or my favorite one, where everyone gets to pound the table simultaneously to try to mess the person writing things down. But one of the die rolls will cause everyone to pass their potato counter papers to the left, making the pencil mark start where the neighbor left off and giving someone else a big head start. And one of the die rolls will cause the roller to reach for the pencil and explain, give me that. Now, if you're already turned off by lots of things I said, which is pounding tables, die rolling at the same time, and taking other people's pencils, this isn't the game for you, probably. If you're a hardcore Eurogamer and all you like to do is look at chits on a board and push them around and have extremely tactical risk decisions that make you feel smart, this is not going to be your cup of potato juice. It really is not. This game is designed to be a silly, great, fun, wacky time with people. Now, this comes from a company that has produced games like Steal the Bacon, a personal favorite of mine, Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, another personal favorite of mine, and 800 Pound Gorilla most recently. Honestly, Dolphin Hat creates just silly, fun party games that are affordable to people, and I love them for it. I always look forward to seeing their booth at Gen Con because I know they'll have stuff that I can afford and gift to people and that they'll have fun with. That's something in the hobby I don't think is paid as much attention to as it should be. Games that are easy to buy, easy to teach, and always have a great time playing them with people who don't play as many games as me. So when I was looking at Gimme That, I had a lot of trepidation to say the least about getting this game because lots of the things that were included in the game, like the pounding on the table and the taking pieces of paper and grabbing pencils, didn't sound too appealing. But I was able to play this with my wife's family and a couple other people since then, and I gotta admit, I have a great, great time playing it, and not only that, other people at the table have a great time playing it too. Lots of times nowadays when I'm trying to get people to play games with me who aren't hobbyists, this is going to come out because I know it's going to get them in the mood for game night and get some of that energy out that has been pent up all day from doing whatever they want to do. It is fun. It is rambunctious. It is just plain silly good time that anyone can play. I've seen kids play. I've seen adults play it. And we're all just trying to mess each other up, trying to count to the simple act of writing down one, two, three, four on these potatoes is absolutely outstanding. Now, why is this lost loot? Why is this something I feel that's been forgotten? Well, for one thing, Dolphin Hat is really known for Taco Cat Goshi's Pizza, and that kind of overshadows their entire company. So games like this kind of get missed every now and then. Plus, 
they usually have like a standard box size they use. And this is much bigger than most boxes they use for most of their products. So maybe some people don't associate it with that company. And the cover isn't really that much to look at. It has a very charming potato on the front, carrying a pencil, wearing a king spud crown. And this would normally be turn some gamers away. I mean, potatoes really aren't a super attractive theme, but I digress in that aspect. I love potatoes myself, and I find them to be quite you know, marvelous in my opinion. I'm a spud guy. I grew up in spud country and I love me a good potato every now and then. Actually, most days I like to eat potatoes, but that's besides the point. The reason this is lost loot is because I feel like games like this tend to get overlooked in the hobby for what they can do for people. Oftentimes, I'll play this game with my family first, especially people who are long distance, maybe not into games as much. Get their wiggles out, get them nice and tired, show them that I like playing fun games, not just the complicated, wobbly-dobbly, 10-page rulebook games. Sometimes I like playing a very simple game that's crazy. This allows me to introduce for me some bigger games, quote-unquote, more hobby games to them, as they just see that I like to have fun too, and the games I play aren't too scary as well. You just gotta trust me. And I think that's very important for the hobby to have is games that people can get eased into just having a fun game night and then go into more things that you like, that you want to show people and want them to be involved with. And especially a game like this, which plays high player count up to eight players, the entire table is going to be involved the whole five, ten minutes of craziness. I played this for an hour one time with my family because we just play games over and over again, trying to, you know, beat each other. They had, <laughs> they're trying to develop strategies, different ways of writing while people were banging on the table. Honestly, just a heck of a good time. So when you're looking for games that maybe are a good way to start a game night, this is a great place to start. I would highly recommend giving me that. It comes with lots of papers that you can, I think, get from Dolphin Hat if you run out of them. But there's so many of them, I don't think you'll ever be able to go through them. There comes with a really nice pencil that you can swap in and out if you like to. Really just an overall fantastic package at a price that you really can't beat for the fun times you're going to have and how often it's probably going to get to your big game nights or even your work treats this is a this would be a great game to do like a work party you know get everyone together compete with each other but also at the same time cooperate with each other ah just such a great time to have and these simple party games these wacky games with not a lot of strategy and more it's more like you reacting to what the game is doing i think don't get as much love in the hobby as they should. Games that just kind of happen and you're reacting to how the game is happening, similar to like Ready, Set, Bet, are starting to get a little more popularity and I'm all here for it. Reacting to something that is happening on the table and letting yourself get invested into it and make decisions because of what's happening, maybe even beyond your control, is honestly, if you buy into it, could be a great group experience and improve your game nights and help people come into the hobby. Well, that's all the time I have today for Lost Loot Adventurers, and as always, if you're looking between the Just Ones and the Hues and Cues and even the Taco Cat Goshi's Pizzas, look behind for that potato in the corner. You never know when you might find some Lost Loot. little visit from the explorer josh thank you so much gotta say you went off the deep end a tad with your love of potatoes but you know what man i can relate uh, yeah i remember watching this show one time where 
Uh, boy, I don't even remember what I was watching. They were talking about traditional Mexican home-cooked meals, and uh, somebody said the quote, something along the lines of like a meal or comida sin carne no es comida. A meal without carne, chili, isn't uh, isn't a meal. Was what this guy's mom would say. And you know what? I've kind of adopted that for myself for potatoes. A meal without potatoes, it's not a meal. Interesting looking game this one is. It feels more like it's going to be one of those activities, like like all kinds of hectic commotion, chaos going on at the table, but that can be fun. We just had the, the party with the lobster gang, all the people that I used to work with, not just the lobster game group, but the other servers, the, the non-gamers as well. We've been getting together every Christmas for the last 10 years now, and we just did that. We just we played some simple trivia, but I could see something like this hitting the spot. One of the other ones that we do usually take and play is the Taco Cat Goat Cheese Pizza, same company as you mentioned, fantastic game. I did do 800 Pound Gorilla, didn't love that one, but you know what, maybe I'll put this one on the list as well. That's Gimme That. Thank you, Explorer Josh. All right, adventures. The next one I got for you is The White Castle. Quickly climbing the BGG ranking list. It's currently at number 348 and climbing. The White Castle's 2023 game from Devere become the most influential clan in Japan's Himeji stronghold. All right, so a little bit of theme here because this is about as much as you're going to get. The heron flies over the Himeji sky while the daimyo from the top of the castle watches his servants move. Gardeners tend the pond where the koi carp live. Warriors stand guard on the walls, and courtiers crowd the gates, pining for an audience that brings them closer to the innermost circles of the court. When night falls, the lanterns are lit, and the workers return to their clan. All right, in a game of White uh, White Castle from BGG, players are going to control one of these clans in order to secure the most victory points, more than the rest. And to do so, they must amass influence in the court, manage resources boldly, and place the workers in the right place at the right time. The White Castle is a Euro-type game with mechanics of resource management, worker placement, and dice placement to carry out actions. During the game, over three rounds, players are going to send members of their clan to tend the gardens, defend the castle, or progress up the social ladder of nobility. And at the end of the match, these will award players victory points in a variety of ways. Okay, so how do I explain the White Castle? This is one that I picked up for Lena, our, our new contributor to the show. I was at PAX and she said, hey, if they got White Castle, pick it up for me. And I said, okay, no problem. But if I open it, will you be mad? She said, no, but you got to teach me. Suddenly I felt like Teacher Ryan. So I had this thing set up and uh, we actually, Scott and Lena and I all had the chance to play this. And when we did our episode, the recording for this like a week ago, Ryan, Scott and I, this was actually the review game for this scrapped episode and it just didn't work. So the White Castle, step one. You got to be ready to do some setup because there's there's a bit going on here. You've got this beautiful board. This game is colorful as hell, in spite of the white and gray box that it comes in. Now, the eye catcher is on the left side of the board where you've got these three little bridges. They're cardboard assembly bridges, and they're going to house dice in the game. So I'll give you an example of a, uh, we'll say, a four-player game. You'll have four dice on each bridge, and the bridges actually have, like, the middle section and then a little, like, step-down ledge on each side. So in a four-player game, you roll the four dice. Two go in the middle, two go on the outsides, and they're in numerical order. So if you have a one, two, four, and six, one is on the far left, six is on the far right. You do that for red dice, black dice and white dice. Now this is a worker placement game, but instead of having workers on your board, the workers are the dice and the values matter. We've seen that before. Here's how they do it in the White Castle. You've got this area of the game board, the the biggest portion of it, where you're playing the game, is in the castle where you're going to find like seven or eight areas where you're allowed to place a die. When you set up the game, you have all these little tiles that have red, black, or 
a white die on them respectively. And you put the tiles in various spots on the board so that it's random. So one of the spaces, for example, might have a few different things that can trigger. And in order to trigger it, I have to place a die there that matches the color of one of those tiles. So put simply, I, I have a, a white die, I put it in the white spot, I get to take the white action. Simple. Now, they make it a little bit more intriguing than that. The actions that you can take, be it in the middle portion of the castle or the bottom, not only is it dependent on the die that's available to you, but it's also dependent on the number. So the way that you get money in this game, the primary way, is the board starts with numbers pre-printed on there, like the, uh, we'll say that first action spot that I was talking about, it's got a three on it. If I place my white die, because I want to take the white action that's sitting there, and it is a five. Well, the difference between three and five is two, so I'll collect two coin. If I place a two on that three, well, the difference is one. I have to pay a coin if I want to place my die there. The values don't matter for you know, the, uh, the strength of the action. They matter for the income and whether or not you can actually afford to take the action if the die has a small pip number. One more variable, one more wrinkle that they throw in for the worker placement spots is that there are two decks of cards, a deck for the middle section of the castle and a deck for the bottom section of the castle. And the worker placement slots, are, they're going to be dependent on what's on a card sitting next to it. You'll actually draw a card and put it into a, into those spaces at the start of play. And that's what the, uh, the available actions are. So turn structure is simple. If there's uh, three of us in our game, we're going to each select a die three times. So you're, you're basically, it's three rounds, and you're going to have three turns per round. So you're going to have nine, effectively nine turns in the game. And what do you do? And you're going to place a die, and you're going to carry out the actions uh, according to the card next to it. So what are the actions? First, you can get some resources, and that's just on your player board. You've got this little, like, inset cutout portion with three little cubes where you can bump up in iron or silk or you know, any of the three that are available to you. Later on, you may end up spending those for various things like sending warriors. We'll get there. The three, we'll say, more influential actions of the game involve those gardeners, warriors, and courtiers. Gardeners, they're going to sit underneath the bridges on the left side of the board so that at the end of a round, if there's still a die left on that bridge, the gardener sitting there will get the ability, the benefit shown on the card that he's there. And they're also worth some in-game points. Warriors, you send them off to the top right portion of the board where they're going to give you an immediate benefit of some sort, plus they're worth points end-game based on how many courtiers are in the castle. And how do we do that? Courtier is the third one. You can take the action to get a courtier to the gates, and you can pay a little extra to have them start climbing the castle. You actually go from the bottom of the board to the bottom section of the castle, then to the middle section of the castle, and then to the top where they're worth the most points. What's really Awesome. What makes this game cool to me is that there's a little bit of a tableau building aspect in that, uh, well, two ways. First, when you're adding a gardener or a warrior or courtier to the board, you're actively taking them off of your player board. You have five to start, so three rows of five of each of those types of worker. You'll take them off the player board and you'll put them onto the main board. Voila. That unveils something on your player board where you have three actions that you can take. There are sixes. So if I select a, a die, we'll say a, a red five, I can place it on the board somewhere and take an action, or I can put it on my player board. And the strength of what I get to do depends on how many of a thing I've unlocked. So if I've removed, say, four gardeners, that action is going to be more powerful because it's got a bunch of little symbols underneath that show me, oh, I get a coin, and I also get to trigger this, and I get to trigger that. Ooh, I like that. 
Plus, as you move up the castle with courtiers, this is this is the tableau building portion that I love. Let's suppose that I have someone at the gates, uh, one of my courtiers at the gates, and uh, I take the courtier action. I bump him up one to that bottom section of the castle where there are three action spaces where people can place dice. Well, again, those are represented by cards. I get to take one of those cards and I get to move it to my player board and put it face down in a tableau. Another symbol, another trigger that can happen when placing a die is basically run your tableau. And it's actually really neat. All the cards, like the action space portions, it's like divided into three and they just read like little rows. But then you flip it upside down and there's this little like flag on the left side with a symbol. So whenever you add it to your tableau, you just turn it upside down and you start tucking the cards so that only the symbols show. Anytime you get to run your tableau, it seems to just keep growing and growing. I like that. The goal of the game, though, with your scoring the most points, really, is getting your courtiers up to the top of that castle, having a good portion of warriors off to the right so that it's like a multiplier. Your your warriors are worth points equal to the number of courtiers. Gardeners in the right spots are worth a good bit as well. I like that. I think the X factor, the thing that makes the game cool, what makes it grip me and make me want to keep coming back is the way that you place the the dice for taking an action. Not only is your income dependent on the pips, but you're allowed to stack a die on top of another die. So if I take a, a black six for my die, that's the, I go, go first in the round. I get that black six, go me. And I'm going to take this action in black and I place it on the three that's pre-printed on the board. I gain three coins and I get to take the black action I wanted. That's fantastic. Somebody else might've wanted that action, but the next best black die is a two. They're allowed to take it on my spot. They just take that die and place it on top of the six. Yeah, they got to pay four bucks, but they get to take the action. That die stacking is really cool. Okay, so let's talk some thoughts here. First of all, the components are fantastic. You've got these laser-cut herons for the turn order for the players. You've got these little season markers. All of the, the like the gardeners and the courtiers, the, the warriors that you're taking from your board, they're all laser-cut. They're all different, so I like that. It's a quick game, relatively quick. It's going to, I mean, if you have people that know what they're doing, the game's going to play in like 45 minutes. And if you're taking your time, it might take an hour 15. It is quick. Three turns per round and there's three rounds of play. That's it. It is going to be a little bit longer with, say, four players as opposed to two, just because that's more turns. Is it maybe too quick? That's that's where that's where I think White Castle is going to have me continuing to come back. I'm not sure yet if the game satisfies me enough. Now I'm the type I don't want to see everything happen in a playthrough of a game. You've got to leave some meat on the bones somewhere so that I'm going to come back and try and discover that next time. Uh, we'll say Ark Nova, for example. I don't want to hit every single project at the max and have every animal and have all my dreams come true and go to Disney after winning the Super Bowl. No, I want to feel like, okay, I won the game, but I, you know, I, I, I wonder what happens if I try and go for that card. You know what I'm saying? This game, by the end of the three rounds, you've got 15 workers, five of each of the three different workers. And in the few plays that I've had so far, I've never had any of the rows, those rows completely empty. And I think maybe the most that I've removed is like eight. Now, it's possible I'm just not very good at it. But if I tried to get more of those workers off, let's suppose that I had a game where I had 10. Well, then I'm going to have fewer cards in my tableau. And I'm the type that I want to build up that tableau. You can't do it all. You've got to get picky choosy and everything's at least a little bit important. Maybe you can win without a gardener. I know you have to have courtiers. I just, I can't imagine not winning, not 
I can't imagine winning the game if you don't have some number of courtiers climbing up that castle because your warrior scoring is dependent on it. The gardeners don't do enough on their own. Small box, nice components, interesting play. It's one that I'm going to keep coming back to. And if you have the chance to play it, I think at this point, I'm going to go ahead and recommend the White Castle. Now, hey, that's the sound of Carl the Trumpeter, and that can only mean it's time for the Top 100 Update, New Highest Peaks, Great Western Trail, 2nd Edition at number 29, Frosthaven up to number 38, Cthulhu Death May Die up to number 68, we've got a welcome to the Top 100 to Oathsworn, Into the Deep Wood, currently at number 93, and I am so tempted to pull the trigger on the, oh my goodness, so... You can get like the base box and I don't know, it comes with like the stretch goals or something for like a hundred bucks, but then you get like the all in with all these modules and the play mat and like any other Kickstarter and gets to an absurd price, like 300 or something ridiculous. And I'm like, do I do it? Oh man. Worth pointing out some games knocking on the door. Carnegie has, well, Carnegie, as we say in Pittsburgh, Carnegie to the rest of the world is up to number 112. Dwellings of Eldervale at 117. Hegemony is at 136 and Revive up to 161. Happy birthdays! A feast for Odin has been in the BGG Top 100 for seven years. Right there with it for seven years, Mechs versus Minions. And at eight years, Blood Rage. All right. So I conned Scott into doing the walkthrough, even though he's sick, because I, man, I'm just running out of energy. So King's going to take it away with the walkthrough and adventures. I'll catch you on the other side. Hey, adventurers. Today, we're looking back and looking forward at a game, Dune Imperium Uprising. This is a reboot of Dune Imperium and includes some new rules and also rules for teams and five to six players. During the game, you will be placing workers, deck building, and competing in a battle at the end of each round. Each player gets a 10-card deck, water, and agents to place on the board. Depending on what card you play, this will decide where you can place your worker. Will you build up your troops? Will you make plays to become more influential with the different guilds? or will you stock up on the ever-needed water and spice? After you place your two agents, and yes, there is a way to get a third, you will then use your cards to purchase new cards to increase the power and reach of your character. Finally, you will use intrigue cards and the sword symbols on your hand of cards to bolster your troop's strength to win the day. Oh, and you can hear more about this on episode 35 to hear our original 8-bit breakdown of Dune Imperium. Now, on to the Uprising. Dune Imperium Uprising is a reboot of a game you didn't realize you wanted or needed. In the new box, there are a number of ways to play. You can play as rivals. You can play with 5-6 to six players. You can play on your own. Play with the Rise of Ix and the Immortality expansions. What you probably want to know is, what is different in this new update? Well, come along, young Padawan. Oh, 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 sorry, wrong young hero on a sandy planet. First of all, in the first edition, you were able to get an extra worker in the form of the Mentat. This would allow a player to possibly get four turns in a round. 
Now, in place of that, you're able to retrieve an agent and replace them by paying an amount of Solari. Another change is in the arena of battle. The worms are here. You're able to harness the Shahalud into battle, but not so fast. The shield wall must be destroyed before they can enter Arakeen in the Imperial Basin. But if you win with a worm in your forces, you double your reward. Another new addition are the spies that everyone has. You need certain cards in order to place them, but when they are out, they can give you a great advantage. The spies will be placed between two areas. When you have a spy, you're able to either remove the spy and draw another card, or sometimes even better, place one of your agents along with one of your opponent's agents. Tried to block me? Ha! <laughs> Think again. There are a lot of new cards available for you, but I don't have the time to go through all of them. Will we be happy with the new update, or are we sticking with the OG Dune Imperium? Let's find out our thoughts on Dune Imperium Uprising. Arrakis, Dune, Desert Planet, home to the most precious resource in the universe, the Spice Melange. After betraying and destroying House Atreides, the Emperor Shaddam Karina IV has given House Harkonnen control over the planet Arrakis once more. But a mysterious warrior named Muad'Dib has risen to power among the Fremen, threatening the schemes of the Emperor and his allies. Other factions have taken notice, as the conflict on Arrakis has reached a breaking point. What was once a blood feud between great rival houses has become something greater. From lowly smugglers, to Bene Gesserit sisters, to the Emperor himself, many have critical roles to play in determining the future of the Imperium. As always, one thing remains true. Whoever controls the spice, controls the universe. All right, thank you, King, for the walkthrough and the breakdown of today's 8-bit breakdown game, Dune Imperium Uprising. Now, Adventures, this one's going to be tough to, to put into perspective if you haven't played Dune Imperium, and I think for most of you, you probably have. If you're here to hear some thoughts on the game, it's probably because you've already played Dune Imperium and you're curious what some of the differences are, that sort of the thing. We're going to go right down the 8-bit breakdown as per usual. I'll share my thoughts on the game. King's played it. We're going to save it for next episode. Maybe we'll do like a... Uh, two games enter, one game leave. I'll put in some comparisons between the two games towards the end, but might save a bit of that for next week. Let's start right here. Bit number one, the art and components. Very, very much the same as Dune Imperium. Wooden pieces for your workers, plenty of cards with the full art, the illustrations on them. It sucks you into the game, the world of Dune. And uh, it's Honestly, it's a relatively unexciting game board, much like Dune Imperium. I like the laser cut tokens for the water and the spice, but man, the Solari in the game, the money in this game, it's uh, it's like gray discs. Nothing wrong with that, but I want my money to be metal or even a token that looks like a coin or something. Just a gray disc. It's, it's always felt a little off to me, even in the base. Same kind of money here for that Solari. Also, the plastic sandworms, I'm sorry, but you turn them sideways and have a look, they're, they're penises, or the appropriate pluralization, peni. Uh, plenty of jokes to be found all over board game forums about the way those sandworms look. The artwork, 
again, perfectly captures the theme of the films of the universe, and it's certainly a highlight of the game. Also, you can incorporate the expansions from regular Dune into Dune Uprising. They put enough care and thought into the components of this game to make sure that the original expansions are compatible with Dune Imperium Uprising. Very cool. Bit number two, theme and immersion, and man, you've got it with the artwork. The big character mats for each player, the thematic asymmetric abilities that are activated by like the signet rings in the game, they've got it. Just like base, you can send workers to the maker areas, influence guilds, seize power in the council. I like the addition of the maker hooks. This one, uh, one of the big differences now is that you have maker hooks. It's There's a spot you can go to, you get a hook, and then once you have a hook, you can get the worms. You can ride those worms in a battle. And sometimes battle is going to take place behind the shield wall. You got to go to activate an area that's going to remove that shield wall for uh, for the game, basically, so that you can fight there. You can get your worms in there. We'll say it's a strange mechanism because literally any time I play, that shield wall is coming down at some point. I've, I've never gotten to the end of the game and it's still be there. In fact, the first time a battle shows up and someone's got worms that they want in a fight, but they've got to remove the shield wall, that's when it happens. I got worms. I beg your pardon? That's what we're going to call it. I got worms. We're going to specialize in selling worm farms. You know, like ant farms. As far as theme and immersion goes, though, uh, maybe the best way that I can put it, and this is sort of my same thoughts as with Dune Imperium, I've never seen Dune, old or or even the new movie. I tried to watch the new one, but I turned it off about a third of the way in. It was, it was a, I don't know, very artistic in how it was shot, and it just didn't capture me. I'm not a big movie guy, so maybe we'll rely on Scott a little bit more for that. But uh, for me, not being a fan of this IP, I don't like, I don't care about it. I still get sucked into the theme of the game. It's The gameplay is just that good. There's so much artwork on all those cards in the market. You buy them. Oh, what's this? What's this guy do? What's this little gizmo? This gadget. Theme and immersion, top marks. Now let's talk complexity. This is slightly over medium weight, just like Dune Imperium, work placement meets deck building. But now we have the introduction of spies, which to me, it's one of the reasons why this game is done so well. And I think that it's actually... Well, spoiler, I think that the spies are an improvement upon what they have going on in the base game. I'll touch more on that in the meat. Uh, As far as complexity, though, if you've never played Dune, this is going to take a learning game. Let's not forget, Dune is not exactly a simple game to understand. This is very much the same, but with the introduction of the spy mechanisms. And when I say mechanisms, I mean there are a few different things that you can do with spies and a few different areas where they're going to be relevant. You see them on uh, like symbols in the market for cards that uh, that say, oh, you can place anywhere that you have a spy currently. You have to know that your spies on the board can be retracted to draw you cards. Little things like that. So if you're familiar with Dune Imperium, you're going to get into this no problem. If you're not familiar with Dune Imperium, uh, or think of the first time that you tried to play it, it's like, oh, okay, oh, so that's how you do, so I need to see the symbol on the card, and then I can, okay, all those little dots you had to connect, if you're introducing someone to a Dune game, and this is it, well, they still have all of those dots to connect, but also they have the spies as well, a lot of upfront information, rule book. And learning curve. I think the vast majority of folks who take an interest to this, as I said, have already played Imperium. So there's going to be some familiarity. And and frankly, you practically already know how to play this version as well. 
They add contracts, they add worms, a shield wall, spies, but none of them are so difficult if you already understand the base game. Now, what's kind of neat about the learning curve is that it also includes a skill curve. And this is one of the areas that Dune Imperium, the, uh, the original game, blew me. You know, I'm just going to say Imperium and Uprising from here on so I don't keep saying the base, the original, etc. <clears throat> one of the areas where I was wowed by Dune Imperium was the fact that there is a skill curve, learning how to play well. So many cards in that market, learning how to evaluate which ones are good, which ones uh, provide you a lot of value for their cost. They've got that here. And introducing spies into the game and what the spies do, that's going to make it that much more of a skill curve. I like that. Obviously, with the board being static, there's always going to be some level of understanding with like which spaces you should go to at what times, but that's made more challenging not only by the actions of the other players, but also because your asymmetric ability might dictate that you do something different. The values change, right? That's where your skill curve comes in. You've got contracts, intrigue cards, and they might push you in a particular direction. I like that. I think it's going to be a long time before you're able to make plays and purchases with a great deal of confidence that you're doing the best thing at that time. Let's get to bit number five, the meat of the game. And this is where I want to talk a little bit about what does this do differently than Dune Imperium? First of all, the spies, that's the biggie. They're going to allow you to activate spots that would otherwise be blocked. They would allow you to use cards from the market as a sort of a wild place wherever you have a spy. So normally in Dune, you have, uh, say, a triangle and a square on a card. Okay, I can use that to place my worker anywhere with a triangle or a square. If I have a spy on the board, there's little circles in between worker placement spots, and there's lines connecting the circle to those spots. If I've got a spy connected to a worker placement spot and somebody's already there, well, I can I can still go there because my spy's there, and I can also draw cards that have the little spy symbol, and that's a wild stating that you know you can go anywhere that's open so long as you've got a spy there. I like that. Heck, if nothing else, simply recalling them to draw a card, that's another ability. If you place a worker where you have a spy, you can see, you know, I'm going to pull this spy off the board, put it back into my supply. You get to draw a card, which in a deck building game, that's huge. It's more resources. They also did a fine job of working cards into the market, the contracts, and the intrigue deck that interact with spies in a variety of ways. Basically, this isn't a module to the game, these spies, this introduction of, of this component. It's not an aspect that you can pursue as you wish, right? They're a necessary part of the game. If you're going to do well in Uprising, you've got to really hammer home your spies. Contracts, you've got to use them. Uh, without them, you've got some spaces that give you like two bucks, which is a big fat whoop-de-doo. And when I say you got to use them, I mean it's optional. They write it into the rules that it's optional. You don't have to use the contracts, but they're not that difficult. For the love of God, put them in there. They make the game that much more interesting. Sandworms felt a lot to me like the Dreadnoughts. If you've played with the expansion that introduces Dreadnoughts, uh, you put in some effort, you get a more powerful fighter. But there is a Mega X Factor, and that's rewards doubling. Yes, let that sink in. When you take rewards from the conflict at the end of the round, you're going to have a doubling of whatever rewards you would receive so long as you had a Sandworm in the battle. Holy smokes, Batman, that is a game changer. So... That's some of the differences from Uprising to Imperium. Where's the meat in this game is still very much like Imperium. It's effectively placing your workers to get resources that you need at the right times according to what your contracts are going to dictate, what your intrigue cards dictate. 
and also effectively purchase cards from the market, build up an efficient deck, whether that means calling cards out that aren't very good or adding cards that do similar things according to what you're strategically trying to do. Oh, oh this card's perfect. It's going to bump me up in the spacing guild and that's going to get me that point token there. Oh, plus it combos well with another card I already got. Deck building has meat in it just based on building the deck. The market itself is the meat of the game. But then you also have the efficiency of where you're placing. What are you doing on that board that's going to make you gain points, get resources effectively? And at the end of the round, are you competing in the fight? What are you doing to gain some points, gain some influence that way? Oof. Dune is a top-tier board game, and I think one of the reasons is because there are so many decisions, so many variables to consider with every simple action. With that, let's get to bit number six, the replayability and variability. Let's go down the list. Deck of market cards. Need I say more? That's going to be a game changer every time. Six are revealed, and that's a big old deck. You're going to have very different games whenever the six that start the game are all kind of expensive versus kind of cheap or favoring one guild versus another. That's always going to give you a different play every time. Asymmetric leaders. Everybody's going to have a leader character that does a thing. My character, whenever we did one of our playthroughs, uh, we played it at four one time, and I had Lady Jessica, and her ability was she could send cubes to one area of the board every time you hit your signet ring. They were called memories, right? And then any uh, at one point, you could basically, instead of adding a cube to the memories, you could say, you know what? I'm taking them all back. I get to draw that many cards, and then I flip Lady Jessica over. Kind of like a limit break. I get this one big action in the game. It was really cool. It's going to be very different next time I play, and I have a different leader. Contracts and intrigue cards, uh, obviously that's going to shape what you're doing in each play. Maybe more of a tactical change. I will say the intrigue cards can straight up win you the game. If you're doing well, you draw some of those really good ones. There's a lot of variance in the intrigue cards. Some of them are a bit more narrow. The rewards might not be quite as strong. Some of them are, a, I don't want to say easier to accomplish, but you have a bigger incentive to accomplish them and the rewards are a little bit greater. I love the intrigue cards in this. Conflict cards, obviously you're going to have some variable rewards, but they're still going to be conflicts. Notably, in Uprising, you're not always going to get a point. In Imperiums, most of the time, especially in that level two and level three deck, you had points for winning the conflict. Here, they do a lot more bump up in influence in one of the guilds. I like that, and I think that it works because the sandworms give you that double reward. So there are oftentimes going to be instances where people are getting to double bump in a guild, in the influence in a guild. I like that. Notably, uh, I should point out, this game tends to play a little bit quicker. You don't always go the full 10 rounds. Most of the plays that we've had, we've finished the game and there are still conflicts, more conflicts than when we would play Imperium left in that deck. Notably, as I mentioned, you can incorporate the expansions. And finally, there's a good solo mode here. There's a six-player teams mode. They've got a few other ways in the book that you can change up how you're playing the game. So with that, let's get to downsides. Now, this is this is another take on Dune Imperium, which is a top 20 game on BGG right now. It's going to be hard to say these are downsides. We already know this is a good game. Scott and I knew when we decided this was going to be the review game, we we're like super excited because this is going to be a good one. 
Well, we do have to cite some downsides. First of all, with variation in a market, sometimes when it's your turn to buy, there aren't any slam dunk cards like somebody else might have found. You might spend three turns trying to get that card that costs eight, and finally you've got that hand and you're going to be able to buy it, and someone else scoops it out from under you. Not that that's the frustrating part. It's just the variation that you're going to find in a market. What's available to you on your turn versus what's available to other people? That can be disenchanting when it doesn't go your way. Also, I really do wish that the money was something other than the gray discs, but and let's be honest, I'm kind of scouring the bottom of the barrel here looking for something that I can call a downside. Uh, it is a very good game. So bit number eight, was it fun and who's it for? It feels a little bit like cheating because when we originally reviewed Dune Imperium way back in episode 35, Scott and I both loved it. And I think Scott had it in his top three of the first season of the show. It might have been uh, number one or two. Uh, I did as well. It was somewhere in my top 10. Obviously, this is one that we love. So who's it going to be for? Much like Imperium, you gotta like deck building, you gotta like worker placement, that tight contention to get some of those juicy spots. If you don't mind your Euro having a ton of interaction, or for that matter, sometimes a little bit of AP, or maybe being a little bit on the lengthy side, I mean, obviously, this one's for you. You're gonna love Dune Imperium Uprising. Again, hopefully next episode when Scott's back with me, we can do a two games enter, one game leave, then we can get a little bit of Scott's thoughts on it because, man, I was really looking forward to hearing his thoughts on, on this because I know he loves that first game so, so much. But I digress. That's for next time. Let's have a look back. So one year ago today, we had the opportunity to play and review Mythic Mischief from IV Studios. Thematically, high school factions are competing to avoid the Tome Keeper in the school library. Boy, this one's a looker on the table. This is, at its core, it's an abstract game. It's just a grid board, but you're trying to get the other team, the other player, captured by the Tome Keeper. It's this big, black, and almost, it reminds me of Gru from the Minions movies. He's got this big old backpack on his back. Each player's got a team of three characters, and they're themed. So you could be like the wizards, the witches, the zombies, the skeletons, that sort of thing. And you're trying to use your faction to have the Tome Keeper work its way into the other player. So on this grid board, you got this, this big Tome Keeper piece. You get your three pieces, and you've got your opponent's three. Then you have a whole bunch of like bookshelves, plastic bookshelves they are sitting out there. And it's kind of neat. You have an, an allocation of actions. You'll gain more actions. You'll gain more power as you continue to play. And these powers do things like change the direction of the Tome Keeper, shift the directions of where the uh, where some of the bookcases are. Like if you've got uh, if you've got a couple on a corner, somebody might be able to bump them in another way. So basically, the Tome Keeper who's going to follow a preset path, he's always going towards the next, we'll say, uh, uh, target space, the next uh, destination space, and it's always going to go the quickest way. By manipulating the bookshelves, you can force the Tome Keeper to go different routes. And ideally, you're putting him into the opponent's pieces. That's really cool. And technically, the winner is the team that scores 10 mischief points, or the team that has the most points after the Tome Keeper has met its, uh, its final location that it had to go to. Thematically, it's returning books. So uh, one year later, this, uh, this is an interesting game, an abstract with some pop, uh, an eye catcher. But I got to say, you know what? 
This one moved out of the collection eh, not too, too long after reviewing it. It's not so much a strike in the game, more that it doesn't sync up with my play style. I'm not too keen on abstracts, and this was very abstract. In spite of the, the theme of having those neat little minis on the board and seeing this big lumbering tomekeeper and the bookshelves being these 3D plastic pieces... None of that had me suspending disbelief. I want to say suspending disbelief like I'm watching a TV show. It still felt like, you know, not checkers the game, but it still felt like while well, I'm playing with pebbles on a board, you know, picture Go, checkers, Chinese checkers, that sort of thing. I'm still playing a game that's that's movement. It's spatial relations with movement. It doesn't matter how cool the pieces are. That's not my favorite type of game. So for me, Mythic Mischief, while I like what it does, and I think for people that like this style of game, this is going to be a clear winner. For me, it was one that I moved on from. One year later, I'm going to go ahead and recommend it primarily at two players and if you like abstract. If that's not you, this is probably one that you can pass on. What? More work? Alright, time to polish this turd. Scrub, scrub, rub, rub, zub, zub. Welcome, folks, to another Polishing the Turd segment. And the segment is moving a little bit away from games that I just don't think worked until they had some kind of hotfix, and into games that may have been good games or even great games, but are made so much better by an expansion or some kind of change. So I'm going to keep calling the segment Polishing the Turd, but we might just be starting with something like a big old unicorn turd or something like that. That's already pretty special. So that's going to bring us into today. And today we're going to talk about Revive. Now, Revive is a game that I absolutely adored and was actually a contender for my game of the year last year. And then this year, I got a chance to cover the expansion a little bit before most people were able to get it at Essen. It just was a game changer. And obviously it's a game changer because it's an expansion. But do you know what I mean? It actually wound up being my first ever expansion of the year winner. The reason for that is it just takes a game that I think is good, but with maybe a few things here and there that are a little bit wonky, and it fixes them. It takes some challenges with the secret objectives, and it makes them work even better. More importantly, it gives you some new factions, which is always good, but it adds this new track to the side with these new jellyfish cards and some new ways to kind of cull and pick and choose the components that you're adding into your machine, and it just works every which way you can think. It's just a magical, magical expansion, and everything about it is just so much fun because you desperately want to get those new jellyfish cards, but the way it's set up is you can't just dive all the way down into the jellyfish land because the track literally doesn't go down that far, so you can actually only get a few of those, and if you're spending all of your time over there, you're neglecting other parts of the game, and it is just, I'm going to go so far to say is it might just be a perfect expansion, one of the greatest expansions I've ever seen, and this was a year that there were a lot of really good expansions that came out, but this one to me takes a game that was already very good and makes it brilliant. I mean, this thing is shining brighter than just Patrick's chest when he takes his shirt off after a long Pennsylvania winter. That's how bright this thing shines. 
So there you have it, folks. I think Revive is a great game, but I will never, ever play it again without that expansion because it is just that good. So there you have it. That is Revive with the expansion Call of the Abyss. This is a can't-miss game for the person who really loves a Euro game and engine building and doesn't mind it being a little bit multiplayer solitaire. There is interaction on the board, but not a ton of it. And when you get this, you got to get that expansion. It's just so, so very good and so very fun. All right. Until next time, everybody. Oh, it looks like never good to do. Never good guide, Lena, is coming back from one of her trips. I hope she brought me some nice little nuggets she might have found on the way. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Hungry Gamer Will Brown, or in this case, the Dung Merchant. Thank you so much for joining us. And I think you just fumbled trying to say navigator. So I guess Lena's going to be guide Lena. I'll have to message her that tomorrow. That's going to be her uh, her her shtick for the show. What with the globe trot, uh, the game trotting segment that is. Okay, so Revive played this one at Origins. Uh, I think Ryan taught us this one, and fantastic game. I just I haven't gotten back to it. It's uh, it's complex. There's a lot of moving buttons. I know one of my buddies, Jimmy, picked it up, and I get the feeling the next time I'm going to play, it's probably going to be at Jimmy's house. Uh, I liked it well enough without the expansion, but now I'm really intrigued to find out about this Into the Abyss expansion. And you know, Adventures, earlier in this episode, I, I, I got to point out, I was talking about Project EOS Rise. You want to watch a good video, get some more thoughts on it. Hungry Game got a video for uh, for Project EOS Rise. Just check out his YouTube channel. Also, my chest is not glowy, Will. Uh, it's <laughs> I'm a notoriously pasty white individual. I, I'm very pale. Yes, Will. Thank you. Thanks for sharing that with everyone. All right, where are we at? Solo Land Adventures. Stick around. I got one more that you've got to hear about. All right, back to Solo Land. I love it here, and I love the one I'm about to tell you about. It's a game called Dust Runner. This is a tin game from Jason Glover. It's published by Grey Gnome Games. It's a 2023 game. It's a mad dash across a desert wasteland while being chased by raiders. Think like Mad Max, Thunder Road, but in a teeny tiny scale because it's a tin game. And what I mean by that is it comes in like an Altoids tin. That's how big the, the box is for this. Now, Jason's produced a handful of these. He did uh, he did Iron Helm. He did Gate, Dig Down Dwarf. And you know what? I've, I've only done a couple of them. I've done Dig Down Dwarf and I've done Gate to this point. Both very good in engaging little solo games with a tiny footprint. So Dust Runner, this thing caught my eye because man, the artwork is cool. And it's got this like this neon pink and kind of a sky blue against black and brown is like the main colors. That's what's going on in this. So what's in the box? Cards. You got a bunch of cards. You get cards for your car, the encounters, the modifications that you can add to your car and the resolution cards to tell you how you're going to resolve combat. You get some dice, uh, you get some translucent cubes as well for tracking health and ammo, that sort of thing. And you get two minis, you get little trucks, one for you and one for the raiders, all in this tiny little tin. So how are we playing this thing? 
Setting up the game, you're going to take out three cards that represent your car. They're double-sided, so like you can go with a different front of your car, back of your car, or middle. And basically all it's going to do, it's going to change the difficulty. One of them has a little bit more ammo to work with or a little bit more fuel. And the only purpose of that, like you win or lose this game based on whether or not you complete the objective of getting to the base at the end of the track. I'll get there. But if you wanted to make it a little bit more difficult, you can make your car a little trickier, a little less powerful, that sort of thing. You'll also get a couple of modification cards from the mod deck. Uh, it's a big deck. There's probably 20 cards in there. Things like, think like a big spiky grill on the front of your car or some afterburners or some big ass guns mounted to the top of your car. They're all going to give you like an, an asymmetric ability for that playthrough. Like the guns that I had one game, for example, it said if I dealt three or more damage in one go, I got to do an extra point. Kind of cool. You take the five cards that represent the desert, the chase, right? That's where it's going to take place. These are simply cards that represent like the spaces that you're going to traverse from the start to the finish. One card has an S on it for start. One has the finish line on it. And that's the objective. You're trying to get there. The Raider truck goes on the first spot and you go just two in front of it. Now, winning the game is simple. Like I said, all you got to do is reach that finish line intact. Get back to the base. If your health ever gets to zero or if the Raider truck ever catches you, you die. You're dead. So what happens in a turn? How are we actually playing this thing? So you got this deck of 12 encounters. And as you go through it, you're going to flip two of them each turn. That's uh, that's considered a turn. It's going to take you six turns to get through the deck. That's a round of play. Uh, there's no limitation to the number of rounds. But a round is going to have you seeing the entire deck of cards. Well, not necessarily. And here's why. On a turn, you take the top two and you put them face down next to each other. You flip the first one and it's going to have an encounter. Sometimes it's a good thing. Like you just straight up gain two ammo or you get to move a space or gain some fuel. Sometimes it's a, it's a decision that you have to make. You can spend one fuel to move one space, that sort of thing. Other times this is going to be a raider. It's going to be one of the bad guys that pop up. And if it's in that first slot, here's the catch. You don't have to take on the raider. Or for that matter, if you didn't want the, uh, like, if you don't have the fuel to spend to move two spaces, if that was your, you know, if you drew like the gas station card, for example, you don't have to do that. You can always go for the second card. But... If the second card is a raider, it's going to have better stats. It's going to have a little bit more health. It's going to hit you back a little bit harder. So there's a little bit of pressure luck in your turn, and I like that. So when you're up against a raider, what's going to happen is you're going to flip this resolution card, and it's going to tell you a couple of things. First, the initiative in combat. Who gets to go first? You or the raider? If it's a raider, they hit you for some damage. If it's you, you might be able to take them out first. And here's how it works. You're going to set their health on their card using the two dice. You actually don't use the dice for combat in this, and I like that. Spend any number of ammo. That's how many cards you get to flip off the top of the resolution deck to see how much damage you deal. See, every resolution card has some number of skulls in the top right. Zero, two, I think it's three. So if I spend one ammo, I flip the top card, there might be two skulls. Okay, great. I dealt two damage. You know what? In that playthrough where I had that big old gun, anytime you do two damage, you get to do some extra. Maybe I take the raider down. If I do, he doesn't get to hit me back. That's awesome. And... Anytime you successfully win a combat, you get you well, you get the reward shown on the card, but you might get a bonus reward based on a little symbol underneath the raider and underneath the resolution card. Sometimes it's an extra mod from the mod deck or fueling up a little bit more, restoring health, that sort of thing. So you played one turn and you move on to the next. Those two cards you had in the middle, whether you looked at the second one or not, they both go away. And you take two more cards off the top of the deck and set them down. Flip the first one. Is it something that you want to do? Oh, it's a raider. He's kind of tough. I think I'm going to press my luck and go for the second slot. Oh, sweet. I get two extra fuel. The second slot's the one that resolves. Discard them. Draw the next two off the deck. Flip the first one, etc. And that's how the game is played. 
As you beat Raiders, they're going to give you some movement. As you flip resolution cards, Raiders are going to get movement. They're constantly on your tail. This game's got a few things that are going for it that I really, really like. First of all, there's pressure luck in a couple of spots. One, are you going to flip that second card or not? Two, how much ammo are you going to spend? You can spend one ammo and you, you might get there, but maybe you want to spend a little bit more. Do the surefire thing and take that Raider down in one fell swoop. There is a tension here, what, with that little Raider truck constantly on your tail. Sometimes I play games and I get three or four spaces ahead and I'm like, oh, okay, sweet, I, I got this. Sometimes it's like, man, I, I didn't, I went for that second card and it was a, a more difficult Raider. They got extra movement. They are right on my tail. It feels like a chase in this little Altoid stand. It's wonderful. The artwork, it's done by Jason himself. Uh, well, he's credited on BGG anyway. The artwork is cool. If you have a chance at some point today, just look up Dust Runner, no space, D-U-S-T-R-U-N-N-E-R. And you can see what I'm talking about. It's got this, this kind of cyberpunk color scheme on a Mad Max palette. It's wonderful. Good variation with the modifications, the car setup. It's going to be a game that's easy to come back to. The setup's really quick. And every time you play, there's some slight differentiation. It's one that I've kept in my pocket so that when I go and break at work, I have the opportunity to bust it out and play. It gives me a great little game to fill that time. So Adventures, if you're looking for a little solo game, some really small footprint, you can fit this thing in your pocket, you know, play it on a train ride or on your break at work, you got to check out Dust Runner. It's cool. Well, Adventures, that does it. We've come to the end of episode 117 of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Thanks so much for having me as part of your day today and for being part of mine. I do appreciate that. Next week, keep your ears peeled. we got a side quest, the best games of 2023. We have the Hungry Gamer, Will Brown. We've got Explorer Josh, Teacher Ryan, joining King and I to talk about the best. And I'm telling you what, we got a list of like 45 or 46, like a culmination of all the top 10s. It's an Boy, it's an episode you're not going to want to miss. If you're in the Pittsburgh area, Sunday, January 28th, we're going to be having our Level Up meetup at SCG Hobby in Latrobe. It's going to be from noon to 6. We'd love to see you out there. Doesn't feel right doing a last word without the king here, so adventurers, keep on gaming. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, Always do what you can to level up.